Hi, my name's Abby. And I'm Alec. And welcome to Fly on the Wall. Uh, today is Thursday and not our Sunday usual release day. And that is because today is International Women's Day and we're very excited to be celebrating that with a fun bonus podcast celebrating um, two important women who have really done a lot in the field of politics and talking about why women need to be involved more in politics and what they have to contribute. But before we get to all that fun stuff, first, follow us on social media. Like you hear every week, we're at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Fly on the Wall on Facebook. Am I missing anything, Abby? You're on the social media. Oh, uh, no, I think that's about it. Our oh, and Twitter. Yeah, oh, yeah. Fly on the Wall Pod on Twitter. Twitter. Yeah, our handle, yeah, at Fly on the Wall Pod. And if you want to email us, it's uh, Fly on the Wall Podcast at gmail.com. So today on the pod, uh, we'll be talking to Marie Harf first. Marie was a senior advisor to John Kerry at the uh, State Department and before that was a spokesperson for the CIA. Uh, since leaving the administration, she has been a GU politics fellow last semester and is currently a national security analyst on Fox News. Yeah, and we're very ha- happy to have her back on the pod. You can go and listen to her other episode that we released last season. Um, and our other guest is Rebecca Turkington, who is the program manager at the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. Um, so it's a research institute on campus that focuses on what role women have to play in peacemaking and um, political um, issues around the world. And so she gives a really unique international opinion um, about women in politics. And on campus, she works on bringing people like Hillary Clinton and various ambassadors and foreign dignitaries and secretaries of state um, to campus uh, to help meet students and, you know, hear their opinion as well. It'll be two great interviews. And with that, let's bring on Marie Hart. Welcome back to the pod. We're really happy to have you. Thank you. I'm really excited to be back. Great. Yeah. Uh, so let's jump right into it. Um, our whole theme of this episode is what role do women have in politics and why they're important in political life? So my first question for you is what value, value do you think women add to politics? Well, a, a ton of different values. And, and I think we can probably all agree that more women need to be involved in politics, that mm-hmm. they need to run, they need to donate. They need to advocate for causes. They need to organize. It's not just about electing women, right? It's getting them involved in every part of the process. Mm-hmm. So I think that women uh, have really powerful voices in advocating both for issues that are traditionally thought of as important to them, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. healthcare, education, childcare, but also every other issue under the planet, right? Some people think national security, which I work in, isn't a woman's issue, but it absolutely is, right? Mothers don't want their sons and daughters going to war if they don't have to. Mm -hmm. Um, People often haven't thought that the economy was a women's issue. Of course it is, right? Women are often the ones, uh, you know, either if they're the breadwinner or if they're not, who are handling the family's finances, right? Mm -hmm. Doing long-term planning. So women uh, have to play more roles advocating not just for issues that fall into that bucket that people have often thought were women's issues, mm-hmm. but across the board. And they're uniquely positioned to provide a point of view that's a little different than their male colleagues. And that's good, right? I mean, you know, the earlier this year, the famous photos of, or last year, the famous photos of these groups of congressmen talking about health care, and there were no women in the room. Mm-hmm. It's like women have unique healthcare needs. That's a fact. 
how can you have that policy discussion without women in the room? It's mm-hmm. just crazy. Um, not to mention all of the other issues this year that we've talked about from sexual assault to harassment to equal pay for women. Like when our voice isn't heard, policymakers are making decisions based on incomplete information. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, and so next, I just wanted to know if you had a behind-the-scenes story or anything mm-hmm. interesting about, like, a particular role you've had as a woman in um, political life of, like, some change you've affected because you were there and because you are potentially, like, one of the only women there? Well, that's a, a really good question. I think that one of the things you learn as a woman in politics, or probably any mm-hmm. field, is that women aren't always good to other women. And by that, I mean, you know, your instinct is to want female mentors, to want female bosses. But there are a lot of complicated dynamics between women, particularly women of different generations, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Mean Girls phenomenon is real. And when you're in a workplace where there aren't that many women, it can be really nasty, just totally candidly. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I've tried to do as I've become a manager, as I've become a mentor, taken on more responsibility is to be good to younger women, particularly. Because I think in Washington, D.C., there is sometimes, uh, you know, particularly previous generations of women who had it harder than we do, who had to work harder than we do to get equal treatment, not that it's completely equal now, but who don't always treat younger women well. And I think that's a huge problem. Um, part of it is some people think that if there's, you know, if there's only, if there's only a limited number of women in an office setting, there can only be one good, you know, or impressive woman and it's competitive. Um, so as I've taken on more roles, I have tried to incorporate that as I've done that. But to give you a specific example of something on the positive side, (laughs) when I was um, working on the Iran nuclear negotiations at the State Department, I was the communications public face of it. Um, But our our lead negotiator in the day-to-day negotiations was Wendy Sherman, the former Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. And on the European Union side, it was also led by a woman, Federica Mogherini. And we have often said that in those, I mean, John Kerry, the Secretary of State, obviously played a huge role, mm-hmm. and the Iranians did not have female negotiators. But we've often said that because we had two prominent female negotiators, I think they brought a different set of skills that made it possible to succeed in the end, right? Yeah. I think often it's easier for women to understand what the other side wants, right? Negotiations are not about everyone getting everything they want or need, but it's about each side understanding where the other side's coming from and being able to use that to get what you need on your side. I think that they just, their combinations of tenacity, but um, understanding, you know, these aren't limited to women, but in those women I saw you know, sometimes the Iranians, I think at the beginning, probably underestimated them because they're women. Mm-hmm. And so that's a very powerful thing, too, because then when you exceed expectations, it's even more influential. So I, I really do believe that the fact that a number of the key negotiators in the Iran talks were women helped us sustain them, 
helped us put in the day-to-day grind work of editing words and sentences and paragraphs and litigating every single thing, pushing through that, getting people on board, building consensus. These are not things that are limited to women, but they are often (laughs) better in women. And I think um, that watching that process play out was, was very powerful. And at the end of the, you know, at the end of the negotiations, the Iranians had as much respect for them as they did for any of the male negotiators. Yeah, uh, great story. Thank you for sharing. Um, so just kind of to wrap it all up, um, what do you think are the next steps to try and increase gender equality? And kind of a subset of that is what should, what can current students be doing now to um, help make the future a little brighter for women? Well, look, I think that what we've seen in this last year about everyone across different industries standing up and saying, we need to rethink how we're doing things. The student generation is going to be leading how we change in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm in my mid-30s and have worked in industries like intelligence or diplomacy where it's not perfect for women. Now, it's not as hard as some industries, of course, um, but we have more work to do. I look at your generation and it's like so many of the things we said, oh, well, that'll never change. Like you don't take that for granted anymore. It's all, it's almost like the gun debate, right? Like, wait a second. This has never changed. Why not? Mm-hmm. We can change things now. I think pushing forward um, and, and this conversation about harassment and sexual assault is very important, but I think we can't lose sight of the push for equal pay. Um, the push for paid family leave for better, more accessible childcare. I think that there are all these issues that impact women throughout their lives. In addition to what gets the headlines today, we really need to keep doing that hard work. The fact that this election cycle, a record number of women are running for office, are donating to campaigns, are running super PACs, are lobby becoming lobbyists or becoming advocates like we are not sitting on the sidelines anymore and for the next generation of women to step up and to work with their male colleagues right like men are a partner in all of this and should be and the good men want to be and you know never women tend to at least the stereotype is you know, when men want to raise, they go in and ask for it. And when women run a, want to raise, they don't. I see that changing in my generation, not totally, but like I look at your generation or the student's generation and think these women are every bit as tough as the men, if not tougher. And so getting rid of some of these stereotypes and fighting for what we believe in and not taking as accepted fact the notion that we don't make as much as men, like... Change happens. It's often incremental and slow and frustrating. Um, but I see that power right now um, among young people who are advocating on a whole host of issues. And I hope if anything comes out of this sort of long political nightmare we're living through, that um, this activism and this legacy of that activism is really part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's great advice. <laughs> and your hope is really, really inspirational for the future of women and for America. You guys got to make it happen. I'm putting all of my faith in you. And, and I, I feel like that's a well-placed faith. And it's hard. And I mean, having conversations on these issues can be very tough. But we shouldn't shy away from 
trying to solve problems because they're complicated, those are the ones we should work harder to solve, even though it's really difficult. So it's all in your hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to come be back here on Fly on the Wall. We do appreciate it, and it's been great talking to you. Thanks so much. Any excuse to get back to Georgetown, I'll take it. <laughs> thank you. So that was a great interview with Marie, and now let's turn it over to Rebecca. Rebecca Turkington, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, of course. And we're very excited to celebrate International Women's Day, and we're very excited to have you on for this. Thank you. Uh, okay, so first question. What value do you think women add to politics? Like, why are they important in political life? I think there are a lot of answers to those questions. And first, I would just say that it's a fundamental human right. Like, inclusive governance really matters, and having a voice and having representation is intrinsically valuable. That being said, there's also a lot of empirical research that shows that women really do make a difference in politics. And so I come from the international women's political participation sphere. Um, <clears throat> so some of these studies are not necessarily focused on the United States, but there's a lot of good data that shows that women's participation and representation in legislatures leads to better social outcomes. So that can include stability and security. You know, countries are less likely to relapse into civil war if there's a higher level of women in, um, in parliaments. They're more likely to have peace agreements last longer. Um, other sorts of things that are correlated with it are greater trust in government, um, less human rights abuses by state forces, you know, things that are really important to security, stability, and development. Um, empirically, women's participation is correlated with those things. So whether that's because women are somehow intrinsically better at governance, which I would say is probably not the case, or whether women are just bringing different experiences and bringing diverse outlooks to the table, which I think is more likely to be true, they are making a difference. So while I think women should be at the table no matter what, it's especially important that they're there, especially in post-conflict and developing countries, mm -hmm. because they tend to improve um, state outcomes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's uh, great. And do you have any like specific stories of um, when a, you think a woman like would have helped the situation, or where women um, clearly like added something and like really changed the course of some political event? Sure. One of my absolute favorite stories to talk about is the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. So this is a political party that was created in 1996 by a group of women civil society leaders. Um, Northern Ireland had had 30 years of war, essentially. And in 1996, they finally, um, the major parties have agreed to peace talks and the United States is going, or George Mitchell, Senator Mitchell, um, is going to mediate them. Mm -hmm. So this group of women first writes letters to all the political parties and says, you should include women in your delegations. It's important to have women's voices at the table. Mm -hmm. Please make sure that you have women. And none of them write back. So they literally meet at one of their houses over the dinner table and they're like, we are not, there will not be women in this peace negotiation if we don't do something about it. Mm -hmm. So they called the electoral commission um, there was a really interesting, because Northern Irish politics is so divisive, they had an election to determine who could be at the table. Um, and part of that was this rule that if a party, the top 10 parties across the region could have two seats at the table. So even parties that weren't really um, legislative or wouldn't have been able to win an election mm -hmm. in a certain district, they could have these top-up seats. And that was really to try to get smaller parties that had an armed wing into the negotiations without... Um, recognizing their armed wing. So the Women's Coalition 
called the Electoral Commission and they were like, what do you have to do to be a party? And can we be one? And he was like, yeah, I guess. What's the name of your party? And they were like, uh, the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. <laughs> and so at that table, just created their own political party. Um, so they had six weeks to the election. They decided in order to win the most amount of votes that they would just run candidates in every possible constituency. So they just called people that they knew from activism mm-hmm. and from through the victims' rights movement, the peace yeah. movement, the women's movement, and said, throw your hat in the ring. We need a candidate in your town. So they ran over 100 people across the country um, and won these two top-up seats. So, of course, as they had predicted, no other parties sent women to the table. So the negotiations had 10 parties, um, two seats for each of them, and then an additional two or three for the main parties. Mm-hmm. And Monica McWilliams and Carl Sager were the only women represented. So these were, you know, years, probably a year and a half of negotiations, mm-hmm. very tough, you know, coming off of 30 years of violence. And they ended up being some of the only voices for really, really important issues like victims' rights, um, integrated education, women's political participation. And I think it was because they were not necessarily coming out of these um, political communities, but they were coming from civil society. So they were really dealing with what they called bread and butter issues. So those are the issues that lead to long-term stability. You know, a peace agreement can stop casualties, stop immediate war, but the things that you really need to think about in terms of long-term stability and security are things like education, like transitional justice. And these, this women's party were the ones who were consistently bringing up human rights, consistently Mm -hmm. bringing up inclusive governance. They um, came up with the idea of a civic forum so that average people and civil society leaders could have a voice in government. And they were really successful in instilling those things in the Good Friday Agreement. Um, and had they not been there, I think it would have looked very, very different. Mm-hmm. Well, glad uh, women were there for that. And um, so that's a good, like, you know, um, jumping point uh, to my next question is, like, what are the next steps you think we should take to increase gender equality in politics? And kind of like a side note off of that, what can current students be doing now to um, get that going. Mm-hmm. So looking internationally, I think quota systems are fantastic. Um, there's new research out that shows that quota systems actually increase the merit of the pool of candidates. So often one of the things that people say about them is, oh, then you'll just get less qualified women. But that's not the case at all. You actually get more qualified women and it makes men more qualified as well. So you're increasing the merit of the entire pool of mm-hmm. people in your government. Um, so quotas are something I think work very well in a lot of countries. Um, they are particularly important in post-conflict societies and a lot of countries now women have made the quota and now are being elected above it, which is fantastic. The United States obviously has a very different political system in which it would be very difficult to um, implement quotas. They Mm -hmm. tend to work better in proportional representation systems or when you have some control over party gatekeepers and party lists. That's not the case here. Um, Something I think has been very effective here in the U.S. is groups that are working on funding for women candidates. So Emily's List is sort of the the original. Um, Mm -hmm. They were founded in 1985. And if you look at graphs of the proportion of women in the Democratic Party, that is a year in which there's just a huge takeoff. You know, 1992 was the year of the woman when um, so many more women were elected to the Senate. And there's just this continual um, increase in women candidates from 
the early 90s onward. And I think a lot of that is due to groups like Emily's List um, and their cohort that are really targeting Democratic women and trying to get them in the pipeline at earlier stages and also make sure that they have the support they need. Because in the U.S., um, funding is such a hugely crucial part of Mm -hmm. political campaigns. Um, I wish that Republicans would do the same. There are a few groups now that are trying to use that model. Um, and I think they've been successful. But if you look today at the proportion of women in U.S. Congress and Senate, you know, the Democrats are already up to like 35, 40 percent of their delegation is women. And it's really Republican women or the lack of Republican women that's dragging down um, the U.S. Pre- uh, representation overall. So that is one thing I would love to see more of um, is to get party support behind women candidates. As for students, run for office. Like, that's what would be great. We Mm -hmm. need a stronger pipeline of women. We need a pipeline of women that are not just going into the Senate and Congress. I mean, the average percentage of women in state legislatures, I think, is 25% this year. Um, That's still very low. I mean, if you look at international standards, 30% is considered critical mass. Um, and most research indicates that until you get to critical mass, you don't necessarily see the kinds of systematic changes that might come from having that level of women. So we don't even know what it would look like. Like, we don't know what politics would look like if there were critical mass of women. We've never had that experience. Um, so I think at all levels of government, whether it's school board, whether it's local politics, whether it's state legislature, you need to build a pipeline so that eventually... Um, you can make it to those higher levels, but also make change at the local level. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the most exciting things about this year's elections is how many first-time women candidates there are and how many of them are very young. So I think there are women around the country who are like 20, 25, 30 running for office, and that could be you. Yeah, no, that's uh, great advice for all women and and even for men as well. So, Mm -hmm. uh, Rebecca, thank you for being on the pod. It's been an honor having you. My pleasure. Happy International Women's Day. And there you have it. I thought that was a, those were two great interviews. Uh, I learned a lot. I think they shared some great stories about why it's so important to have equal representation of uh, women here in Washington. Yeah, and uh, they definitely made an empirical case for how women can actually affect the um, political outcomes um, because they think more about things that men typically don't such as uh, social justice, humanitarian needs, and how different policies will actually affect people's lives and people's homes and it was really really interesting to get their take on that and really showed the importance of why uh, people should be pushing to have more women elected into various legislatures around the world. Absolutely and with that everyone have a great rest of your spring break and we are excited to see you back on campus with a new episode not this Sunday but next Sunday.